Before beginning this week's episode of New Perspectives, I wanted to take a brief moment to provide a bit of context for this episode. Currently, the COVID-19 pandemic is an ongoing crisis that continues to develop every day. Since recording this episode, we have become aware of the presence of emergent new strains of the virus, the effectiveness of the various COVID-19 vaccines, and learned more about the lasting impacts of contracting COVID-19. Because of the nature of this crisis, I believe that it is important to review the most up-to-date guidelines and information provided by the Center for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, and your local officials in order to determine how the pandemic is impacting your community and what precautions you should take, such as wearing masks and practicing social distancing. We will be able to get through this if we all work together. Stay safe, everyone. Welcome, 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 everyone, to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, and on this episode, Brian and I chat with Jake Eagleberg over Zoom about a piece he wrote last year titled, Why Colleges Staying Open is Still the Right Move. In the piece, Jake explains why he thinks colleges were justified in allowing students back on campus last fall amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. In our conversation, we talk about the various ways the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting college campuses, such as Northeastern, as well as our surrounding communities. Additionally, Jake shares his experience as a biochemistry major to give a great explanation on how the COVID-19 vaccines work at a microscopic level. Jake also joins us for another installment of Class Struggle, hosted by Ariana Bennett, to tell us about one of his favorite classes at Northeastern. As always, I recommend going online to nupoliticalreview.com in the opinion section to read Jake's piece for yourself. And without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, he, him pronouns. And on this week's episode, I'm joined by one of the podcast producers, Brian Grady. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me on again. And our guest this week is Jake Eagleberg, a Nooper contributor who will be discussing his recent piece titled, Why Colleges Staying Open is Still the Right Move. Jake, if you could go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Jake. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I'm a biochemistry major and a journalism minor. And my article is all about how I think colleges were 100% correct to reopen for the 2020 fall semester. Uh, I believe that coronavirus does not really pose a danger to specifically college-age students, and that other diseases like pneumonia and even their treatments like antibiotics probably have more dangerous long-term impacts than coronavirus. Now that said, colleges should take measures to protect susceptible staff and students, But for the vast majority of the population, coronavirus-19 is not necessarily that dangerous. For those of us who can remember the beginning of the pandemic, one of the major events that happened back in March of 2020 was that every university that I'm aware of decided to essentially shut down and send its students home after the outbreak of the pandemic. And... Since then, it has been kind of unclear what the 
best response would be going forward after the summer, whether colleges should reopen and have students return to campus in person, or if they should continue kind of what occurred for the end of March and April of distance learning from people's homes. And so Jake, you've made it quite clear that in your view, the right call was to bring people back. And you gave a little bit of the reasoning already, and I was wondering if you could tell us in a little bit more detail why you think colleges in particular should be going back in person for both the fall 2020 semester and presumably for the spring 2021 semester and moving forward. Well, I think the primary justification that I have for this, uh, for this view is that just by the data, COVID-19 is not dangerous for college-age students. Again, this is specifically about college-age students. There's a working paper that calculated the age-specific fatality rates for COVID-19. Uh, as far as I know, this is, one, this is either the only one that was published or one of the only ones assessing the age specificity of infection fatality rates for COVID-19, meta-analysis, and public policy implications. It finds that the death rate for people aged 0 to 34 is 0.004%, which is lower than the death rate for car accidents. It's lower than the accidental death rate. You're more likely to die just by accident than you are by COVID-19 if you're between the ages of 0 and 34. And since I've written my article looking at hospitalization rates, there has been a slight increase, but generally they're still very, very low for college-age students. Uh, if you're between the ages of 18 and 29, uh, right now it's about around 0.1%. So the vast majority of college-age students that get coronavirus are going to recover. They don't have very severe symptoms. They're certainly not going to die. And I don't see how coronavirus poses enough of a threat to justify shutting university, denying students the opportunity to educate themselves the way that they always have, and really condemning low-income students to a form of education that's subpar. You focus mainly on the fatality amongst these students. So there's kind of two lines of questioning that come to mind for me. The first is obviously the question of lesser side effects, not necessarily fatalities, and how that could have an impact still on college-age students, potentially. And I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that. And the second more important point is the question of how really permeable college campuses are. You know, we're saying college students amongst each other will not cause fatalities. But the assumption is, of course, to what extent will things get out or move? Focusing mainly on that second point, what do you think about the kind of permeability of college campuses and how that might affect this calculus? Well, I mean, I think you're 100% right to point out that we need to consider college campuses are not just closed communities that are completely isolated from the world around them, but it's also important to consider that it's much easier to isolate a college campus from the surrounding community than it is from people within that campus, even at a school like Northeastern. Uh, and this is because um, the city has requirements, the university has requirements that if violated, people place punishments for, and it's really easy to track if people are violating them. What I mean by this is the city, the university, uh, or the surrounding community, wherever the college is, can require that when off campus, students are wearing masks, can require that in businesses, well, business owners would themselves require that people wear masks if they want to be protected. Social distancing can be mandated outside of the campus when students aren't interacting between each other. And these simple protections will protect people in the surrounding community from students on campus that potentially could have the virus. 
you anticipated one of my questions there, which is kind of about, you know, a college campus, we can't guarantee separation from the surrounding community. And specifically at Northeastern, we have a very substantial off-campus population, um, specifically thinking of like the Mission Hill and Roxbury areas where a lot of Northeastern students live in apartment housing with roommates and building mates. And kind of, even though they're not on campus strictly, they're still able to attend classes in person and to attend, to go to businesses surrounding and the other, attend community functions, basically, you know, like house parties if they were to happen. Just to clarify, you're kind of saying that additional protective measures should be implemented in these off-campus communities where students live? Not necessarily. I think that if students who are off-campus and are having a party with other students spread the virus to each other, I don't see anything wrong with that. Again, the virus is not dangerous for college-age students. My problem is with when these students interact with people who are susceptible. So, for example, businesses in the community I think students should absolutely be required to wear masks, although that's up to the business owner, right? Um, But students should be careful and take caution when interacting with older individuals, when interacting with people they know have pre-existing conditions or people who'd let them know that they might not be comfortable with certain behaviors. We need to be aware of each other and what people are comfortable with, but we also need to be aware that age is a very big predictor of of severity of symptoms. And so with college age students, if people want to engage in like parties or hangouts that aren't socially distanced, that don't involve masks, I don't think there's anything wrong with that so long as everybody there is comfortable with it. The problem is, again, interactions with other people who might not be comfortable or who might be more susceptible. I'm curious if there's a bit of an assumption of responsibility and kind of self-enforcement from an age group that is not entirely well-known for listening to orders well and being considerate of others. I mean, simultaneously, the most safe demographic is also the one that listens the worst to, uh, you know, rules. I'm not certain to what extent that's a reasonable expectation from college students. I mean, I think it's perfectly reasonable because if a college student goes into a business that requires masks because the store owner is of a particular age or has a pre-existing condition and the college student doesn't listen to the to the mask requirement, that store owner has every right to kick that student out of the store and say, you're not allowed in here again. In fact, this happens all the time when people try to steal from Wallistons every week. Uh, I don't see why uh, store owners couldn't do the same if, if shoppers are violating that store's mask requirement. So I think, you know, there's, there's a level of crackdown that's required to enforce it, but absolutely students are going to listen if it's the only way to go into the store and buy something. Again, the the broader community, there are ways to enforce these kinds of things, even though college students might naturally be rebellious. Speaking of crackdowns, Jake, there was a pretty high profile incident at Northeastern that many of us have come to know as the Weston 11. So the the quick elevator pitch summary of that is Earlier in the semester, I think in September, there was a group of 11 Northeastern students who were living in the Weston Hotel, which has since become Northeastern Housing, and they were found to have violated the COVID-19 gathering restrictions, 
and they were promptly and somewhat publicly dismissed from campus. And I know that you were talking about crackdowns earlier. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this incident and kind of the effect that it has had in the the student body's perception of the COVID-19 response. Well, I think there's a fundamental difference between what happened in the Weston 11 case and what I'm proposing. And that is with the Weston 11, we saw a group of students gathering together without any susceptible, any clearly susceptible person, right? There weren't any older individuals in that room. And so I think that Northeastern's policy that resulted in them having to break up this gathering is not necessarily based in the science because they're acting like this gathering was inherently dangerous when in fact, even if all of these students got COVID, it wouldn't have been dangerous. It only becomes dangerous when these students with COVID go out into the broader community and they interact with susceptible populations. So I would think that crackdowns are necessary in cases where a student goes into a business who's owned by an old that's owned by an older individual and that individual is uncomfortable and requires masks and the students don't listen because they're putting somebody at risk. The students are putting somebody who's actually susceptible at risk. But in this case, nobody here is at risk. And so I think that should have been allowed. I think that to a certain extent, college students should be allowed to gather with each other in an almost normal way, right? Again, certain restrictions in stores, you have to wear masks. Um, in certain cases, right, in classrooms, when you're with older professors, you should be wearing masks. The professors should also be wearing masks, maybe face shields, socially distanced from professors. You know, certain measures need to be taken to protect susceptible populations. But again, only susceptible populations, right? Not everybody, even those who aren't really at risk of this thing at all. I know when you wrote this piece, you were looking at the American higher education university system at large, but we're both Northeastern students and we're, you and I, Jake, are currently living on campus. So I wanted to take some time to discuss in more detail what we have seen on campus when it comes to the COVID-19 response and the types of testing and PPE and protective measures that the university is taking. If you wouldn't mind, Jake, could you give our listeners kind of a brief summary of how Northeastern has been handling the COVID-19 response? So I think Northeastern's strongest weapon against the virus is the level of testing that they're doing. Northeastern has us being tested at minimum once every three days if we want to attend in-person classes or other student events. But really, we can schedule tests even more than that. And because the virus needs to propagate in somebody's body for a certain period of time before they become contagious, Northeastern's catching people who are sick before they have time to spread it to other individuals. And it's really cut the transmission rate on campus pretty significantly, at least I think. And so that's probably their strongest point of attack against the virus. And I'm actually really, really happy the degree to which they're doing testing, and I think that's very important. But at the same time, I do think that Northeastern, like many other schools, are scared of lawsuits. They're scared of being held liable for allowing this disease to propagate, students getting sick, and the outlier event, but still possible event, that a student dies or becomes 
very seriously hospitalized happening. And because of that, they have taken measures that are overly strict. And so we're not allowed in residence halls that are not our own, right? Recently, we were we became allowed to travel to other rooms in our residence halls, but there are still strict limits on how many people can be in a room. Clubs are still restricted in how many people can meet and what they can do. Students don't really need to be scared of this kind of thing, this kind of thing being COVID infection. It's really uh, professors, staff who need to be protected from the students. So I don't see a problem with student clubs meeting if it's only students there. I don't see a problem with student sports happening if it's only students playing the sports. I don't see a problem with students meeting in each other's dorms when the risk is just so low. Again, you're more likely to die in a car crash. You're more likely to die by accident than you are from COVID-19 if you're a college-age student. There are are schools in the South where entire dorms have gotten it, and everyone's fine. Now, again, maybe the media is going to take the outlier case that everybody wants to pay attention to, where somebody gets seriously sick, and use that to scare parents, uh, because that's what gets views, but that's not representative of, of this disease's general impact. And so we need to keep that in mind when assessing how Northeastern is handling things and also how colleges are handling things in general. So, Jake, your approach is very much focused on these statistical fatalities. But to kind of loop back to an earlier question I didn't kind of complete, there are, in some cases, clearly these side effects occurring to people in these younger age groups. Yes, they don't end up in a hospital, but you have small children getting Kawasaki syndrome, I believe was the title of a you know, cardiac kind of effect. And then obviously amongst 20-somethings, there are effects that you've expressed some doubt uh, will have long-term repercussions. But at least speaking personally, uh, I've still been struggling with effects from what was likely COVID back in March, personally speaking, I would feel uncomfortable going back into an environment where I'd be put in a lot of danger to get it again because I was miserable for two weeks. I had a fever. I could barely move. I had the chills. I could barely think. And I didn't die, but I'm still struggling in a lot of ways. So this worry about side effects, I'm not the only one, I know. And I kind of question your desire to just see it propagate relatively freely amongst a community that, yes, won't die, but may end up kind of miserable. Yeah, so I think you bring up some very good points. First, I'd just like to address the Kawasaki uh, disease that you brought up. I think, you know, scientifically, it's multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that was associated with COVID-19 infection. Again, that's, first of all, extremely rare, even after COVID infection. Um, It's very, very unlikely to happen. But it really only affects younger children. And my article specifically pertains to college-age students, so multi-system inflammatory syndrome uh, isn't really relevant in the discussion about whether colleges should reopen, unless you have, you know, a genius eight-year-old go into some university. Anyway, uh, I think you raised some really good points that there are a lot of people, um, I think student athletes particularly, who will come down with this. It's the worst cold in their life. And then afterwards, it's, they underperform relative to where they were before infection. And I've heard a lot of anecdotes about this. Um, from people that I know, uh, including you, obviously. And that's a real concern. But because we're young and we're lucky, that sort of damage is going to fade over time, at least in the vast majority of cases. In in my article, I cite lung disease expert, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Panagis Galiatsatos, who points out that even after serious, serious cases of COVID-19, lung recovery is possible and very likely over time, especially for young people. 
because our body naturally heals. Tish new tissues grow, damaged tissues die out, and it'll happen over time. We will recover. And I would also like to point out that, yes, COVID-19 may result in moderate term, right? Like lung, I don't want to say impairments because I think that implies it's, it's a more significant impact on your abilities than it really is for most people. But lung impairments, for lack of a better word, is not, COVID-19 is not the only disease that causes these kinds of things. I mean, pneumonia is fairly common. Millions of people get it. And it also causes long-term lung complications. And when you actually look at people with pneumonia, they're much more likely to be hospitalized, visit the emergency room, and die later in life than the general population. We don't shut down colleges for pneumonia. And we know that pneumonia causes these complications. With COVID-19, we don't even know that for sure yet. Uh, especially with young people. So I, I guess to summarize, I think it's true, you know, we need to worry about long-term complications. That is something we should keep in the back of our mind, but we don't shut down universities for other conditions that we know cause long-term lung complications. And COVID-19, while it may impact, and while it may be miserable, uh, the impacts will fade over time. So a lot of your main arguments in favor are essentially statistical safety and the fact that it's helpful for schools to be open for students that are in relative poverty. To what extent are you kind of doing groundwork here on the university's sake in terms of financial elements and the concerns, obviously, that they're looking in some ways for housing costs and they're concerned about people trying to lower the cost of tuition if it's being done online? Is any of that part of your consideration, this calculus, or are you focusing entirely on the medical fatality and items like that? I'm more focusing on the medical perspective. I know a little bit about other efforts the university is making to make things more financially accessible, but I most of my research has been focused on COVID's impact, how school closures have affected different communities, those areas. But I, I think I do want to clarify COVID-19 causing the closure of schools is not only bad for those in relative poverty. Just I know that if I had come, if I was forced to come home and take Zoom classes every day, living in an apartment, potentially in a city with siblings that are loud, young, it's so much more difficult to learn in that environment and succeed than it is in a dorm or at the university in that setting. Even something like just babysitting responsibilities could really significantly, I think, impact someone's ability to learn. And I don't think that's so, so uncommon, having students be required to take care of younger siblings. I, I just, I don't think that is super uncommon and it's something that would realistically be faced by many college students who would be returning home. They'd have those kinds of distractions. Then on top of that, a lot of students, right, don't have reliable internet access, don't have devices that have the technology capabilities uh, to handle Zoom classes. It's just, it creates a really big disparity between people who have the means to succeed in an online environment and people who don't. And I would like to point, you know, statistics bear out my perspective. At Arizona State University, after the initial school closure, lower income students uh, are now 55% more likely than higher income students to delay graduation after they closed because of COVID. And the gap between lower income students' GPA and higher income students' GPA has nearly doubled. So 
the toll that this takes on underprivileged students when you close schools is enormous. Switching gears to the the last thing I want to touch on, Jake, with you today is between when you originally wrote this article and the time that we're recording, there has been what I find very exciting news of multiple vaccines. And I know that you're a biochem major. So before we get into kind of your your take on the vaccine and distribution for college students, I'm curious if you could give us a little layman's primer on how the COVID vaccines are created, how they work, and how they can help protect people from the virus. I don't know everything about the vaccine. I think some of the information is not publicly available, but I'll give you the best summary of how I think it works based on on what I've read. So the way that these vaccines are made is the scientists have taken a virus and genetically engineered it to be harmless. So for example, they could take something called a pox virus, which you might associate with smallpox, but genetically engineer it so it's completely harmless, right? They've tested to make sure that this vector has initiates no immune response, does not attack your cells, poses no threat. And these are significant genetic changes, right? It's not just going to mutate back into an active form and, and kill you. They're, they're null viruses. They can't do anything. And then they take out the normal genetic code in this virus and put in genetic code for a certain portion of the coronavirus. Now, the coronavirus vaccine candidates that are currently being distributed are called mRNA vaccines. And that's because the genetic code being put into these viral vectors, the the ones genetically engineered to be harmless, is RNA, not DNA. RNA is just a derivative of DNA. DNA is naturally turned into RNA in your cells. This happens all the time in every single one of your cells, you know, thousands and thousands of times a second. So this doesn't really change anything. They're just skipping a step where the cell would normally translate the DNA to RNA. They're just going straight to RNA. So the the RNA vaccine is almost identical to historical vaccines. But anyway, then they take this virus, this harmless virus with a portion of RNA that codes for a section of the coronavirus, and they inject it into you and it spreads throughout your blood. Your cells will naturally absorb that RNA. They'll read the RNA and start producing that part of the coronavirus that was encoded for. And as soon as those cells start making this specific segment of the coronavirus, your immune system cells are alerted and they say, hold up a second, we see a particle that's not from your body. And they bind to that particle, again, the section of the coronavirus, and begin antibody production. And antibody production just means there's, they start churning out all kinds of proteins that they hope can also bind to that particle. And they keep churning out these proteins until they find one that binds really, really well. And once they've found one that binds really, really well, they start producing that one on a massive scale. And this just causes your body to flush your system with antibodies that all target specific part of the coronavirus. And this is important because now what it means is when you get infected with the actual coronavirus, your body is saturated with particles that can bind to the coronavirus instead of your cells, which means the coronavirus is it's essentially a chastity belt for viruses is like how I just is how I like to describe it. Okay. The viruses love your cells. Coronavirus loves your cells, but the antibodies come, they literally block the virus from interacting with your cells. It's literally a physical blockage. And that's how these vaccines work. 
thanks, Jake, for giving us that kind of humorous explanation of, of how the vaccine will work. And so my question for you is, in your opinion, how does, a, how does an effective COVID-19 vaccine factor into a university's response to the COVID-19 pandemic? I think that um, it doesn't really, well, in my ideal world, it wouldn't matter because students can already get coronavirus in my like ideal situation because again, it just doesn't really threaten college students. I guess it could matter in that universities should vaccinate professors and then the professors wouldn't need to be socially distanced from students, right? Professors and staff, they wouldn't need to socially distance, wear masks, face shields. You, would ju- you could just lessen some of the restrictions in, in that context. So in that way, a vaccine would matter in my ideal situation. But besides that, I don't think it really changes much. The last question I have regarding the vaccine is, what would you say to people who might have some concerns about the COVID-19 vaccines that are in the news? Someone who isn't an anti-vaxxer by any means, but has maybe some reservations about a vaccine that was created so quickly and that is being geared up seemingly for mass distribution. Should that person be concerned about getting the vaccine or concerned about possible effects of it? I'm just going to refer back to something I kind of touched on, which is that these COVID-19 vaccine candidates are called mRNA vaccines because the viral vector you're being injected with has coronavirus mRNA. This only differs from historical vaccines in that some historical vaccines used viral DNA. Your cells, if you were injected with viral DNA, would just turn the DNA into RNA and then create proteins from that. So the COVID-19 vaccine being an mRNA vaccine just means they're skipping the step from where the DNA is turned into the RNA, right? You're just being given the straight RNA instead of relying on your cells to turn DNA into RNA. So I've heard, I've heard some people worried that because it's an RNA vaccine, it's different from historical vaccinations. It's a completely different mechanism. Who knows what could happen? It's not really all that different from a biological standpoint. They're just skipping a step that would naturally happen in your cells. Now, that said, uh, when it comes to long-term effects, this matters because the vaccines that use genetic material, DNA or RNA, to produce specific parts of the virus that your immune system is activated by, these have historically never had problems with long-term effects. And what I mean is these vaccines have been in, in circulation for a long time in the general public, this class of vaccine, and the CDC collects vaccine safety reports from anyone who thinks they've been harmed by them over many years. And they analyze these reports for trends and symptoms and account for covariates, right? Whether this person had something else that could explain why they're feeling uncomfortable or suffering what they're suffering. Uh, And they use this to determine whether a vaccine has been safe over longer periods of time. And this specific class of vaccine really only has one issue, which is that in testing, sometimes it can cause an immune response that's too strong. It's not that you're going to become infected with the actual virus. It's not that you are going to be poisoned by some preservative in the vaccine. Those things don't happen with this class of vaccine. I mean, the preservative issue, that's not a risk anyway. But the only risk is that the immune response caused by it is too strong. And we don't need to worry about that being a long-term effect because the immune system response is strongest two weeks after infection. 
and clinical trials, even for the COVID vaccine, extend way past two weeks. You know, they're going on for many, many weeks after vaccine injection. And so if the vaccine was dangerous, we'd know probably within the first month that people were experiencing negative side effects uh, because the immune response would be too strong. It would cause people to suffer all kinds of symptoms. That hasn't happened. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say, look, with every single medication we take in our life, there's risk, you know, every single one. When it comes to long-term effects, it's really hard to measure these things because none of our medications are tested with 80-year-long randomized control studies that track people over their lifetime. But we can reliably say, based on what we know about the immune system, what we know about how vaccines work, that this virus will in all likelihood not cause any long-term side effects. And that's just something we really don't need to worry about. Well, that's good news too hopefully good news to a lot of people who are betting on this vaccine as the end of the pandemic. On that note, I think we're going to wrap up this week's episode. Jake, I want to thank you for coming on the show to discuss your article and your views on college's responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. As always, I encourage everyone to check out Jake's piece on nupoliticalreview.com titled, Why Colleges Staying Open is Still the right move. Jake, thanks for being here. And Brian, thank you for joining me on this week's interview. Of course. Thank you. Welcome to our newest segment of Class Struggle, where we here at New Perspectives compete for your extra electives, hosted by me, Ariana Bennett, one of the podcast producers. Jake, thank you for joining me today, and I'll have you start with telling us your favorite or most impactful class you've taken here at Northeastern. My favorite class has definitely been Understanding Today's News with Professor Howe. In that class, we discuss daily developments in the news, we discuss different interpretations of that, and my favorite part of it is that Professor Howe really encourages divergent opinions. He doesn't want just one side of the political spectrum to spend the entire time complaining about the other side. He wants real discussion. And our midterm project involves submersing ourselves in news that we disagreed with and then learning those perspectives and debating them from from a standpoint that we disagreed with ourselves. And I thought that was really fun to do. It was really educational for me. I learned a lot. Um, And it really shows the point of the name of the project, which is that reasonable minds can differ. That's great that you found such an impactful class that has introduced you to new perspectives just in your first semester here at Northeastern. So my next question to you is, how has this then maybe changed your degree or even your career path in the coming years? I'd say that Professor Howe's class definitely solidified my interest in pursuing a journalism minor. I had known that I had might want to pursue that minor starting in high school after taking English in 11th grade with Miss Wallace. Shout out to Miss Wallace. But, um, you know, I wasn't really sure 100% if I should make that official. And after taking Understanding Today's News with Professor Howe, I just knew that that was something I wanted to do. Well, I'm glad that a class has given you some of that career path clarity, I guess. All right, Jake, thank you again for joining us for our newest segment. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I want to thank Jake for joining us on the show to discuss his perspective on college campuses in the COVID-19 pandemic and for providing us a great technical explanation on the basics of the COVID-19 vaccination. I also want to thank our producers, Brian Grady and Ariana Bennett, for all of their work both on the mic and behind the scenes to bring new perspectives to you. Make sure to check out nupoliticalreview.com for more from Jake and all of the other great writers contributing to Nooper. If you're interested in publishing an article with Nooper, check out the submission link at the top of nupoliticalreview.com. Once you submit that, an editor will reach out to you to get started on the process. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of New Perspectives. I hope you all stay safe and have a great day.